Good evening, folks. My name is David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. And you are tuning into the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is episode number six. This is the podcast in which we use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other bands that we think that you will like. We love Fish fans. We are Fish fans. Fish fans listen to way too much Fish. We're going to do something about it. Yeah, we uh, are going to be focusing our sixth episode on one of my favorite jams, uh, the version of Twist from Fukuoka, Japan, on June 14th, 2000. Uh, Basically, what we're going to do today is uh, talk a bit about the history of uh, the song Twist, the jam, uh, that came off of this, the particular style that Fish is playing in within this jam, um, and a bit about the Japanese uh, tour that they did there in early June 2000. And then we're going to jump into uh, some features on other music that we think, uh, other artists, and some songs that we think uh, really um, align with this particular jam hopefully turn you on to something that we that you uh enjoy for the long haul give you something else to listen to in your uh, in your playlist so we're really excited about this episode um jumping into some really cool styles of music that we both enjoy and some of the themes we're going to explore in this episode include audience patience and fish ambient jamming and Minimalism in Rock Music, which is going to be a feature on Yola Tango, which is you'll hear much more about later in the episode, but they are a band that both Brian and myself like very much. And on that note, let's get to it. twist from Fukuoka, Japan. Um, One of the reasons that we chose this jam to talk about uh, in our sixth episode is this is a great example of patient and ambient fish. Uh, Ambient music is a style that fish started playing with in uh, 1996, 1997, and more specifically 1998, summer of 1998. Um, and it's something that they really uh, uh, they they utilized for the late night set at the Lemon Wheel. If you remember, they did a long ambient jam during that set, carried over into '99 and 2000. And here in this jam is really really uh, heavily featured. Um, one of the capstone jams of 2000. One of the probably I would say um, the big jam of the uh, Japan run. Um, this is. Just really patient, somewhat melodic, but drifting, somewhat focused fish, uh, as we'll get into in a little bit, almost furniture fish. And uh, really, a lot of this can be seen within the 1999 release of the Psychic Disc, which was a fish studio album that wasn't so much individual songs, but it was um, comprised of select outtakes from The Blob which was the large piece of music that they did at Bearsville Studios in 1998 when they were recording the story of the ghost. Um, it's a largely largely instrumental album. It's also, I know, uh, the one song that really makes it into the fish sets we all know is What's the Use? Right. Sometimes the song My Left Toe. But really, it was sort of an approach to get away from song-based jamming and more of the ambient, uh, ambient soundscapes that we are going to explore on this episode. Yeah, I've always loved the idea of how they recorded uh, the Psychit, the Sicket disc. Um, Do we know of, if it's Sicket or Psychit? I've always thought it was Sicket. Um, okay, but could be. I, but, you know, if, if someone wants to uh, add us and tell us that it's actually neither and uh, it's uh, Sicket... Uh, we would be more than happy for your feedback. 
Or Sake. Um, or Sake. Yeah, it's a silent T. You never know. Right. Uh, <laughs> Brian, can you think of, um, while we're on the topic of the patient jams, can you think of anyone in particular that you saw live yourself? Yeah, I would go with um, my first show, actually, uh, 2-20-2003. They played a near 20-minute version of Simple towards the tail end of the first set, which um, just saying that uh, really harkens back to the fact that I I started seeing Fish in 2.0 because you really wouldn't say that too much here in 3.0. But it's a really dark, effect-laden jam. I remember watching it, and um, I had fantastic seats. And I remember at the show kind of needing to uh, give a little bit more effort towards um, towards listening than I was expecting going into the fish, going into my first fish show. Um, I was rewarded thereafter with one of the most exciting, fantastic uh, jams I've ever seen live in the the set closing. Got a jibu, but upon re-listen, the simple always delivers. Um, but yeah, definitely in the moment was. Uh, required quite a bit of patience. What about you? One that comes to mind for me would be October 8th, 1999 from Nassau Coliseum. I think it was the second night of a two-night run. They played a tweezer in that second set, which um, it got, I would say, the last seven or so minutes of that tweezer were very quiet very ambient, really all you could hear was an assistant John Fishman drumbeat, and it almost, I seem to recall, it looked like the stage was bathed in almost like a cocoon of ectoplasm. It got very sinister, very quiet, and it was clear that they weren't going to do any peaks, they weren't going to do any massive trilling, they were essentially forcing you with this tension just to go along with the really spacey portion of that jam. And I listened to it yesterday for the first time in a while. It still holds up. Um, some other examples of ambient fish jamming that we kind of came up with were be the uh, Hampton 1998 Simple, um, one of the prime examples of fish jamming in the ambient style. Um, the 4298 Twist, uh, the Island Tour Twist, 71399 Wolfman's Brother, 12-2 bathtub gin uh, from uh, Detroit, Michigan. Um, kicked off the December 99 tour that led to Big Cypress. There were loads of uh, loads of ambient jams throughout that tour. See, we had uh, December 3rd, 1999, Limb by Limb from Cincinnati, Ohio. The December 10, 1999 Tweezer, that was the first night of a two-night run in Philadelphia that I was in attendance at. That was uh, the first, that was the opener of the first set. It gets very loud and very building to a gigantic wall of sound towards the end of that. Um, And we had the version of Drown from December 12, 1999 from the Hartford Civic Center. Piper. From December 13, 1999, of course, the August 2nd, 2003 Waves from It, which is a very lush standard waves. And then like the last 10 minutes of that is just a, a cocoon of ambient noise. Yeah, that uh, that last 10 minutes um, is just open field festival fish, uh, as patient as it gets. Um, the following summer, 619, 2004, uh, Walls of the Cave had a similar type of jam where the coda uh, almost turned into an ambient jam. And then uh, 3.0, they haven't really uh, utilized the style too much as a vehicle, but the 1230, 2011 Piper uh, definitely um, uh, definitely makes you think of uh, or definitely touches on ambient themes. Yeah, that Piper was definitely the highlight of what I want to say was a fantastically bad New Year's Eve run. <laughs> so in terms of the show, so this comes on a very short, uh, just over a week long Japanese run. Um, one of my favorite little tours the band has ever done. Um, really wish that they'd get it together and do another uh, quick little jaunt, if not to Asia, at least to Europe. Give us a week of international fish. It seems to bring a lot of good out of them, um, as evidenced by some of the recent uh, Mexico shows. 
I'm thinking of 115, 17, and 117, 16. Um, but anyway, this was uh, uh, preceded by a two-night run, I want to say, to close out the Summer 99 tour. Where they played I think the- three nights. Three nights, three nights. Yeah. Um, they played the Fuji Rock Festival. Those were their first shows in Japan. Um, really, the big highlight of that is the 2001 and Bowie from 731, as well as the, um, you don't always hear this, but a really, really killer Prince Caspian later in that second set that um, uh, really showcased um, not only how patient the band could be at that time, but how fiery Trace still could be. I think some of the other ones we mentioned on that tour was um, the very long, very self-indulgent tweezer from June 9th. That show was actually also showed on Japanese television. I think on June 10th, there was a very good down at disease and a piper with a very, very spooky noise jam. June 11th, I don't think I've ever listened to the June 11th show, but it's notable because it was opened up by the Japanese jam band Big Frog, who you can go to their website and still listen to some big frog music. I'm not sure if they're still together. They were together till the mid OOs and they went on a seven year hiatus of their own. Like their heroes got back together. Don't think they've had any dates since 2015, but um, those guys were a whole lot of fun. And then June 15th, there is a fantastically melodic, very underrated ghost that I recommend everyone go and listen to, in addition to a very good down disease. And I think on June 16th, the second set opener is a 25-minute runaway gym. Plus, all these venues have awesome names like Drum Logos, Zep, Big Cat. And, you know, it was uh, lots of fun times out in Japan. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I um, I wish this had coincided with one of my years teaching in Korea. I would have happily taken a week off to to go and uh, um, check fish out throughout the throughout the island. Um, this show six fourteen two thousand. Uh, of course, this was released on uh, the, in the first live series batch. Uh, this was live fish oh four. Um, similar to the other shows, this has a really ambient jammy theme throughout the show. Uh, particularly set two, um, I think you would probably, I think you would definitely agree with me on this, David. Um, this really rises above the pack of the week. Uh, I think there are some really great shows throughout there, but this one really perfects the style that they were going for. Oh yeah, I mean, the second set of this show, they had a definite theme in mind, which was lots of ambient jamming coming out of places that you wouldn't normally expect to hear it. Yeah, you such in like walk away. Walk example. Away has a has a coda jam that goes on for about four minutes and really descends into um, total minimalism. Uh, Back on the Train gets a 13-minute run in it. It doesn't necessarily go ambient. It's more just beat-driven. Um, the Twist, obviously, has the Twist proper jam that uh, really explores the main themes of Twist in a very minimal way while also adding on to it 18 minutes of... Uh, funk-laden kind of space jamming. And then it ends, uh, the set ends with a really hazy kind of late-night 2001. Um, One of my favorite 2001s that they've ever played. It really moves at a pace that you just don't get out of a lot of them. It's also probably the slowest version of Walk Away that they've ever played. Yeah. But (laughs) given the hazy ambience of the set it kind of makes sense in context absolutely it's uh, it's one of those shows where they could kind of uh encore with sleep and the squirming coil just fits perfectly and isn't during before a set break they said they're going to go backstage to get nourishment it's kind of like a wink wink type thing or is that like another show no no yeah that's how they end uh the split open and melt that um uh, they'll go backstage and they'll get nourishment and they'll nourish their brain and they'll come out and they'll share, they'll share their nourishment with the crowd, something like that. Um, right. Who knows what they're talking about? You know, they, they could just be drinking the green tea. Hmm. <laughs> Some kind of tea might have been involved. Some kind of but, tea. But anyway, what we're going to focus on is actually the uh, first segment of that Twist Jam, not the second segment. Yes. And I think at this point... I'd like to listen to some of it. I'm down with it.
According to Brian Eno, one of its pioneers, ambient music must be able to accommodate many levels of listening attention without enforcing one in particular. It must be ignorable as it is interesting. Ambient music is a genre of music that puts an emphasis on tone and atmosphere over traditional musical structure or rhythm. It developed in the 1970s from experimental and synthesizer-oriented styles of the period. Brian Eno named and popularized ambient music in 1978 with his album Ambient One Music for Airports. The concept of background or furniture music had already existed some time before, but in the 70s, ambient music first created incorporating new age ideals with the newly invented modular synthesizer. The impact of the rise of the synthesizer in modern music had on ambient as a genre cannot be overstated. In 2013, Eno said that one of the important things about the synthesizer was that it came without any baggage. A piano comes with a whole history of music. When you play an instrument that does not have any such historical background, you are designing sound basically. You're designing a new instrument. That's what a synthesizer is, is essentially. It's a constantly unfinished instrument. You finish it when you tweak it and play around with it and decide how to use it. You can combine a number of cultural references into one thing. Eno has also been outspoken about the role of the recording studio in ambient music, notably in the freedom it gives in crafting textures of sound. Eno used this freedom later as a producer, working with artists like U2 and the Talking Heads to find a space within their songwriting and open their music in previously unknown ways. In the 1990s, in London, artists such as Aphex Twin with Selected Ambient Works Volume 2, Global Communication with 7614, both in 1994, The Future Sound of London's Lifeforms and ISDN, The Black Dog, their record, Temple of Transparent Balls, Boards of Canada, and the KLFs all took part in popularizing and diversifying ambient music, where it was used as a calming respite from the intensity of the hardcore and techno popular at the time. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, artists like Stars of the Lid and William Bazinski used ambient soundscapes to build highly influential albums that continued the spread of ambient music into the world of indie rock. Speaking of Stars of the Lid, the first song which we're going to discuss in the first segment on ambient jamming is going to be the opening track off of the Tired Sounds of Stars of the Lid, which came out in 2001. Now, this band is an American avant-garde music duo that consists of Brian McBride and Adam Wiltsey, and I think they formed in Austin, Texas back in 1993. And the compositions, they're uh, largely what you consider to be beatless soundscapes composed of droning, effects-treated guitars, plus piano, strings, and horns. They use volume swells and feedback, and they fill the gap with rhythmic instruments, providing dynamic movement. Uh, the sound has been described as, quote, divine, classical drone, without the tedious intrusion of drums or vocals. And the band's name refers to, quote, your own personal cinema located between your eye and your eyelid. And um, the next record after this was in 2007 and their refinement of the decline, which was uh, their last record to this point. And really, it's minimalism in front of a droning, haunting backdrop. This song, it feels like waking up. And there's strings and horns on the record, giving it uh, a very full sound. Lots of cello, especially. Yeah, this song, uh, Requiem for the Dying Mothers, part one, uh, off Tired Sounds of Stars of the Lid, uh, was one of the first 
songs I remember being, well, one of the first records I mean, I remember being turned on to when I was getting interested in ambient music in uh, 2009, um, when I was living in Korea and had hours and hours and hours to scour music blogs and one of the prettiest songs I think I've ever heard um, you guys might remember we played in episode one um, a song by Brian Eno uh, called The Big Ship that had a just really somber and kind of hauntingly beautiful uh, melody that rose and, and kind of fell throughout the, uh, the, the track this is kind of that if you stretch it out over six, seven minutes long and really kind of slow it down. So let's go ahead and listen to Stars of the Lid right now. talk about another uh, recent uh, pioneer of ambient music within the indie rock, larger indie rock scene. Um, William Bezinski uh, put out a collection of songs in 2001 uh, called the uh, Disintegration Loops. And basically um, what he did, uh, he, he was salvaging some earlier recordings that he made on magnetic tapes and transfer them into the digital format. However, when he was uh, transferring them, um, the tape had de- had deteriorated to the point that as it passed by, the tape had uh, the ferret detached from the plastic backing and would fall off. Um, the loops, uh, he would allow them to play for extended periods as they deteriorated further with increasing gaps and pauses in the music. Um, these sounds were treated further with, sp- with a spatalizing reverb effect, um, and the, he finished this project uh, coincidentally on the morning of the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City. Um, so really interesting take on uh, ambient music where you know a lot of the focus of ambient music is kind of allowing time to just pass by and uh, to allow the music to really enter your uh, day-to-day moments and not really take them in a different direction. And so, you know, he was taking this old music that was dying and really doing that with it in, in live form. Um, 
William Bezinski is, is an avant-garde composer who's based in New York City. He's a clarinetist, a saxophonist, a sound artist, and a video artist. He's best known for uh, the disintegration loops um, that he put out in four volumes from 2001 through 2003. Um, he, uh, he began developing his own vocabulary uh, using tape loops and old reel-to-reel decks uh, in uh, 1978, uh, he was inspired by minimalists, minimalists like Stephen Reich and Brian Eno. Um, and he developed this very me- meditative and melancholy style, uh, experimenting with short-looped melodies played against each other. Um, uh, when he finished recording the, dis- the disintegration loops, um, he reportedly sat on the roof of his apartment building in Brooklyn with friends, and they just had them playing in the background um, as they watched the World Trade Center's collapse, um, he took some pictures of this, and it's actually what's used as a cover art. It's this very blurry image of smoke passing over Lower Manhattan, and really, really powerful, um, really uh, just meditative image. Um, in terms of any uh, you know real tribute that you could give to uh, the tragedy of the day. Um, the song that we're going to play here, um, Disintegration Loop 1.1, um, or at least a section of it, it's a near hour-long track, or just over an hour-long track. Um, it's just this very beautiful, very haunting, uh, very simple melodic structure that just passes over um, an extended period in time. And um, you can just imagine watching this tragedy unfold, listening to it, and all the emotions that it stirs up. That was a portion of Disintegration Loops by William Basinski. And now uh, the third song we're going to discuss in this segment is Eden by Talk Talk off of the album Spirit of Eden, which came out in 1988. And Talk Talk, they were an English new wave rock band active from 1981 until they broke up in 1992. Some of the early hit singles include the song Today, Talk Talk, both from 1982, and It's My Life and Such a Shame, uh, both from 1984. Um, they had some moderate success in um, their native country, which I think was the United Kingdom, but they had some more international success. Nothing quite like Duran Duran, to which they were initially compared, if you could imagine. Duran Duran without the Simon LeBon glitz and yachts and much more angst and existential paranoia. Um, the one song everyone tends to know is It's My Life because mostly um, on account of No Doubt's reasonably faithful, um, sorry, reasonably faithful cover of it. And it's a great song in its own right. It's a very catchy new wave song, but unlike, say, 
a flock of seagulls. These guys went off the reservation in a major way when they put out Spirit of Eden. Um, Talk Talk's 1986 album, The Color of Spring, was the most successful to date. So at that point, uh, the label EMI, they kind of opened up the checkbook and they gave Talk Talk complete control of the recording process in effect, saying, we trust you, go crazy. These studio sessions often found that they been working in darkness, recording many hours of improvised performances, drawing elements of rock and jazz, classical and ambient music, and it took about a year to complete. And wouldn't you know... When the band delivered their completed album to EMI in March of 1988, the response was along the lines of, you got to be kidding me. We don't hear a single. This isn't going to make us any money. We put our faith in you, and this is what you come back with. Uh, You really can't blame the label. I mean, this isn't really like, for example, Wilco delivering Yankee Hotel Foxtrot to the label and saying, oh, no, there's no single. This is more like, let's say, like Katy Perry wanted to put out a vegan hardcore record. Much in their back catalog that suggested this was the direction Talk Talk wanted to go in. I mean, the last record had some long song lengths, but it was still designed with standalone songs and singles in mind. The drummer actually had to play drums like you and I think of playing drums, but uh, with Spirit of Eden, the operative word is esoteric. Uh, this album has to be listened from start to finish. Preferably with good headphones and with a lot of patience. I mean, it almost seems a little bit counterintuitive just to play a snippet here because it's not a snippet album. So they follow this up um, after a protracted legal battle with their label in 1991. They were with the Polydor label. They put out the album Laughing Stock, which uh, it takes Spirit of Eden to even further extremes that some prefer. And I would say that. The second song on that album being Ascension Day, that Radiohead knocked it off six ways to Sunday on Amnesiac. And after Talk Talk broke up in 1998, the frontman Mark Hollis, he put out a solo record that's so quiet that half the time I'm convinced that my stereo is not even on when I play it, but it is quite pretty. But... Yeah, I mean, like I said before, Spirit of Eden was kind of, was very much ahead of its time. It had uh, some textured guitars, very glacial tempos, emphasis on dynamics, electronics, and ambience. It really paved the way for bands like Sigaros, Mogwai, Godspeed, You Black Emperor, Low, and uh, yeah, certainly later period, uh, I mean, latter period Radiohead. It had some jazz, classical rock, spacey echoes of dub, and really the silence is almost an instrument in its own right. It uh, really gets one of my higher recommendations, and right now we're going to play a portion of the song Eden, but like I said, if you get anything from this podcast, is that you should listen to this album in full, preferably the headphones and the lights out. So let's do that now.
Okay, this is the portion in our show where we kind of take a break and discuss some new recent albums that both of us have been listening to as of late. And I will begin, Brian, on the one that I've been listening to quite a bit lately. It's Whiteout Conditions, a band called The New Pornographers. They are kind of the most reliable go-to, I think, nowadays for buzzy power pop. They've been at this since 2000. They were first based in Vancouver, and they're, uh, in terms of their consistency with records, this is their seventh record. They're kind of like the band Spoon in that every they don't put out anything bad. Everything they put out is just varying levels of good. They're uh, led by the very bubbly ginger fellow Carl Newman, and he's assisted on co-lead vocals by Nico Case, who has a fantastic career in her own right as an alt-country chanteuse. Also, Newman's niece, Catherine Calder, helps out with vocals. She was recruited in the mid-2000s to uh, assist with the female vocal counterpoints when Nico Case was unavailable to tour due to her own career. And uh, she's been, Catherine Calder's been in the band ever since. Like I said, uh, this is their seventh record. The last one, which came out in 2014, was called Brill Bruisers. And with this one, they really double down in a very buzzy new wave synthesizer sound that they began exploring on that record. And really at this point, um, they perfected their sound, which is to say driving pop songs and massive hooks that reveal themselves over time. There's harmonized choruses and, uh, the new pornographers, it seems like their peak record is probably still 2005's twin cinema, but if you wanted to tell me that Whiteout Conditions was their best since then, I wouldn't necessarily argue. It's kind of like every new Pornographers album since Twin Cinema. At first, it always seems really good. Like, you acknowledge that it's good, but kind of unremarkable. And then by the fourth time you listen to it, it's all you're listening to for the next month or so. They, they don't put out crappy music. They know how to get their lyrics to stick in your head, and they're just... Um, a top flight band. I'm really looking forward to listening to this all summer. What do you got? So I got a um, release from a band called The Necks out of Sydney. They are an experimental jazz trio formed in 1987 uh, by Chris uh, Abrahams on piano uh, and Hammond organ, Tony Buck on drums, percussion, electric guitar, and Lloyd Swanton on bass, guitar, and double bass. Um, these guys play improvisational pieces. Uh, many of them can be up to an hour in length, um, and they really dis- uh, explore the development and demise of repeating musical f- uh, figures. Um, think about them. Uh, I guess the best uh, correlation for a Fish fan would be um, either, if you really like the record, Medeski Martin Wood's Tonic. Um, that would be a really good place to start as a branch off for a group like this. Um or Fish, 1995, Summer 1995 Fish would be a really good place to start in terms of the style of music that they play. Um, from a live oh. performance standpoint, these guys will begin very, very quietly. One of the musicians will play a very simple figure, and one by one, the other will, the others will join until they're playing something that's um, independent but very entwined. Um, uh, on this album, Unfold, which came out... Uh, I believe in February. I've been listening to this for a little while here, and it just really seemed fitting for this record. Um, This is their 19th album, um, and this is the first for the Ideologic Organ label uh, that is also shared by Stephen O'Malley uh, of Sun O fame. Um, What they do with this record is they devote each of the four sides to one improvisational piece. So the run times are 15 to 22 minutes. Basically, it's taking a typical next piece and uh, chopping it into, into quarters. Um, there's really no intended sequence to this side, so you don't have to listen to this record in its order. Um, similar to the album that we were talking about in the last segment, um, Talk Talk Spirit of Eden, I would definitely recommend this being a listen that you do in full. There's by no means any singles on this. It requires quite a bit of patience, um, but it really, uh, when, when you throw headphones on and you just get into this album, um, each piece flows in a really, really patient and methodic way, uh, very, very meticulously crafted. 
Um, it feels like music that um, a hermit would be into uh, while uh, meticulously reading uh, Dostoevsky or something like that. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It was fantastic throughout the winter. Um, and uh, one, of, uh, one of my favorite records of 2017 thus far. this point the second segment is going to be about minimalism in rock music and we're going to do something we've never done before on beyond the pond which is to take three songs all focused on one band and that band is hoboken new jersey's finest yola tango i'd say full stop yola tango is my single favorite band that is not named fish and while they don't sound that much like from one another, they do share many traits in common, namely at this point a huge discography. Both have an ability to cover a very large amount of styles while still always sounding like themselves. They have endless music geek knowledge resulting in lots of covers. Trey Anastasio Fish and Ira Caput of Viola Tango are both what I would call would call uh, guitar heroes. And both bands have an endlessly changing live show with lots of improvisation that rewards multiple viewings. Um, I think Yola Tango, they work off of set lists, but they never play the same show, never play the same show twice. An example of this is from um, 2002 until 2012. They had a tradition at uh, the Maxwell's Club in Hoboken, which doesn't really host music anymore that's a really another podcast in of itself from those years they had their eight nights of hanukkah shows where they would do every year an eight night run of music lining up for the eight nights of hanukkah i think they took two nights off and those shows were just ridiculous like vinyl nerd potluck nights with the amount of performers that they brought out and the amount of deepness they went into their discography. I have many stories from those shows as I saw several of them. But anyway, getting back to the band themselves, currently they consist of Ira Kaplan on guitar, his wife Georgia Hubley on drums, and as of 1992 to present, uh, James McNew on the bass. And uh, Ira Kaplan also plays a lot of piano and organ, and really in the live setting, they switch instruments regularly on stage. Like I said, the current iteration of the band has existed since 1992. They're originally from Hoboken, New Jersey, formed in 1984 with Kaplan and Hubley, and they shuffled through about 17 bass players before they struck gold with James McNew. For the sake of brevity here, um, in terms of their career, I would say the almighty click fell into place on 1993's Painful. That was the first record where James McNew was a full-time contributor, and it's generally considered to be the first of their legendary 1990s album run. The songs on Painful, they're patient, they're very hooky, and also very noisy. This was essentially the first album where... Um, they fully codified the Yola Tango sound, which I would consider to be feedback-laden and epic, while never losing sight of the song itself, and very much indebted to the Velvet Underground. After that, they put out Electra Pure in 1995, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One in 1997, and, and then Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out in 2000. Each of those records is straight fire. And maybe, um, let's see, briefly, I just want to give you uh, one Yola Tango anecdote um, regarding the I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One album. It's um, when I first met my wife back in 2004, I was familiar with Yola Tango, but never, I knew about them. I knew they were good. I knew some individual songs, but I never really listened to them. And I believe it was our third date. I went back to her apartment, I saw her album collection, and I thought, oh, I can get into this. And um, at that point, I think we started talking about Yola Tango, and I told her I had never heard I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One in Full. She basically said, are you kidding me? 
And she said she almost lost some respect for me and said, okay, I'm putting this album on. You're going to sit down. You're going to listen to it. And we're not going to talk about it until it's over. And we proceeded to do just that. And it was like being hit by a bolt of lightning out of the blue. Literally, where has this been all my life? And kind of at that point, I said, well, I guess she's the one. Because if we break up, I'm never going to be able to listen to this ever again. <laughs> and... Um, they do pop songs, they do kraut rock songs, acoustic piano songs, 10-minute noise jams. But for the purpose of this podcast here, we're going to focus on um, their use of minimalism in rock and that they tend to do a lot with very little, not much in the way of the traditional guitar solos. Um, there's an emphasis on swells and volume and scribbling in the blanks. So the first song we're going to talk about to kick off uh, the Yola Tenga portion of the show is Autumn Sweater off of uh, I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One from 1997, which I still think is their finest album. Um, Autumn Sweater is perhaps one of Yola Tenga's best-known songs. And Ira Kaplan, he sings the song. It's sort of like a very tempered, not so much singing as more of like a sing speak it's in fine form it's almost like he's whispering and he's telling a classic nerdlinger love story that i guess anyone who's been in like an indie rock love story they could relate to um it has a very notable melody i mean it's right in the middle of very very dissonant album but it's not dissonant like the other songs and it's kind of a prime example of how they can really do a lot with very little and what's also interesting is that the song it takes on different arrangements in a live setting depending on how the band is feeling on any given day you know i've seen them do the song with no organ and just acoustic guitars. I've seen them do an arrangement um, a cappella. I've seen them play it with a baby grand piano. Rigid rules don't apply, and it's um, you know just a very, very pretty melody, and it's uh, one of their most famous songs to this point. So we're going to play that right now. Tango songs off of uh, I would definitely agree the finest album that they've put out to this point um, a lot on that second tier though for them and one of them is um, one of the first albums I ever heard from Yola Tango 2000s and then nothing turned itself inside out uh, the track that we're going to play off of that uh, album is the opening song every day um, and then nothing turned itself inside out is their decidedly sedate Dark Blue 2000 record. Um, Yola Tango is not a band that appears to be particularly morose or sad, but if there ever was an album you you could compare to Picasso's Blue Period, this would definitely be it. Most of these songs explore relationships and gaps in communication, falling in and out of love. Those kind of moments in between uh, connection with someone else where you 
are kind of wondering what you've done wrong, wondering where you've gone uh, wrong or where you've gone astray. Um, and they do a really great job of touching on these subjects in a very nuanced way that they don't come across as overly wrought or uh, melodramatic. Um, this song, Every Day, it's a really interesting song in the sense that it uh, really isolates a, each musical element um, and really thrives on repetition. There's a drum machine, there's a solitary bass line, chanted vocals. Um, Ira Kaplan doesn't really doesn't so much play guitar as much as uses it to fill in blank spaces. It really uh, sets an atmospheric tone to the overall record. Um, this song, uh, it's nearly seven minutes long, never peaks. It's really less about that instant gratification uh, than it is about the journey. And again, it just sets a tone for this record. Um, for me, uh, you know, David's story uh, about how he discovered I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one, um, have a similar uh, sensation. I did not fall in love over this band, um, but I was in Korea in 2009, and I remember taking a very intentional approach to um, basically discovering any band and listening to any band that I had heard about and knew I need to listen to, but I had never really done so before. And people kept telling me, you love Fish, you love Wilco, why are you not listening to Yola Tango? So I got Fake Book, and I got, uh, and then Nothing Turns Itself Inside Out for no other reason than kind of just luck of the draw, picked them out. Um, this album really hit me at a time when I was um, into ambient music a lot. I was really getting into different ways that you could structure songwriting. And it always is the record, always the song that will get me a um, uh, huge, huge impact on where my musical taste went in the coming years. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this song. One of the this 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 album, I would say, is one of the big reasons why I wanted to communicate uh, um, kind of the musical journey I'd been going on. Um, so definitely excited for you guys to hear this. Uh, let's listen to every day right now. So that was the first song off of And Then Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out called Every Day. Just as a footnote, the second song on that album, Our Way to Fall, very pretty, innocent love song. Also the song that me and the wife walked down the aisle to. So when I say that we really love Yola Tango, I'm not joking. <laughs> but anyway... The last song that we're going to feature in this segment is uh, from their 2009 album called Popular Songs. Not one of my favorite Yola Tango records, but still objectively very, very good by any other standard. They're sort of like Radiohead in that sense. The song is called More Stars Than There Are in Heaven. And this is an example of them using some very charming repetition. It focuses on layers and layers of drums and subtle guitars. There's chanted vocals. There's a gradual build. Again, it really rewards good headphones. It gets uh, quite cacophonous in a live setting. It's um, a good example of, again, how Yola Tango can be at their most delectable when they purposely don't give themselves that much to work with. And this song is just... Basically, Georgie Hubley and Ira Kaplan sort of like, you know, like professing their love for one another over this nine minute build. And it worms its way into your head. And it's probably my favorite song on this album. A good example of uh, them using some minimalism in rock. And let's play it for you right now.
right, hope you enjoyed that selection off of Yolo Tango's 2009 record, Popular Songs. Uh, wanted to thank you guys for coming back and uh, checking out Beyond the Pond once again. Just to give you a quick recap of what we've listened to. So uh, the start of this, we played Stars of the Lids, Requiem for Dying Mothers Part 1 off of the Tired Sounds of Stars of the Lid. Followed that with William Bazinski's uh, Disintegration Loop 1.1 off of the Disintegration Loops. <clears throat> Talk Talks Eden followed off of Spirit of Eden. Uh, we jumped into our uh, new feature on Minimalism and Rock, a overview of Yola Tango with Autumn Sweater off of I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One, Every Day off of And Then Nothing Turned Itself Inside Out, and more stars than there are in heaven off of popular songs. Just want to remind the listener that we are out there on social media. At Twitter, we are at underscore beyond the pond. On um, our Medium page, it's medium.com slash beyond the pond. And as always, we update the Spotify playlist. Before every episode goes live, it's on that playlist. You can find every song that we have uh, played or discussed of the songs that are on Spotify. Also includes several of the jams, the ones that uh, Fish released live. That playlist is the Beyond the Pond podcast playlist. Absolutely. And we are uh, currently uh, running strong on a publishing structure of every other Tuesday. So this will come out on uh, Tuesday the 30th, I believe, and then we'll come out again in June. Uh, we've got some great episodes we've got lined up for the summer, a couple of surprises uh, that we're working on. We're really excited. Uh, I want to thank you guys all who are returning listeners. Anyone who's passing the word on, please continue to give us great reviews on iTunes. Um, give us some feedback on Twitter, uh, via, via, uh, other social media um, outputs, but we're really excited um, to be doing this. Uh, I know that we've both been enjoying this project here a ton and uh, excited to uh, share with you guys what we've been working on for the summer. And finally, in some sad news, we just wanted to give a RIP to Chris Cornell, who, um, of course, from Soundgarden, Audio Slave, and several solo endeavors. Um, me being a 37-year-old male, he was absolutely instrumental to me in growing up with the grunge era. He had the best bellow anybody in the grunge era, one of the best songwriters, and sometimes I don't think he ever fully received his due. So uh, I will miss him dearly. And beyond that, Brian and myself would welcome you back in two weeks. Come together and we can go beyond the pond. So-